This is false and defamatory, the impact of defamation and weaponized social media. Trigger warning. This podcast discusses topics related to emotional abuse, gaslighting, verbal abuse, threatening language, cyberbullying, intimidation tactics, and thoughts of self-harm, which may be triggering for some listeners. The content includes descriptions of manipulative behavior, psychological distress, body shaming, online harassment, and other forms of abusive behavior and emotional trauma. Please take care of yourself and consider your mental and emotional state before listening. If you need support or someone to talk to, please seek help from a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. Thank you for listening. When all of this started and I was sitting in my living room, you know, with my daughter, my husband, uh, my other kids were somewhere in the home. It honestly is I don't remember every detail. I just remember being shocked in disbelief. I felt like a zombie. I could not believe that this was happening. Let me rephrase. I could believe that the defendant was making up some crazy nonsense about me. That was, I expected that. I had been waiting, honestly, because that's what she does with everyone. On no planet did I think that it would be to this level. On no planet did I think that she would involve the police and the FBI and the Texas Rangers or whatever else she was saying on no planet had I ever seen whenever she would defame other people and past employees was the follower commentary this vast and this bad. She had been building this up to friends and followers for a long time about these troll blogs. And now she had created a narrative where one person well, myself and H were going to take the fall. And so all of that hate and all of that, uh, oh my gosh, I can't believe these people do this to you. And people's anger that there were, uh, you know, people being mean to the defendant on the internet that was now directed at me and H and that was her goal. She needed to explain the fact that she had these people online that would say unfavorable things about her. And she also needed a target for someone to take the fall. And she chose me. I remember the first weekend, my, I was in such a state that at some point my husband said, we need to check your blood pressure. You're not okay. And I had had high blood pressure, uh, hereditary. I'd had it since I was 20 years old and it was, it was under control. I had just been for my checkup in September and everything was normal. The medication that I was on was handling my blood pressure just fine. But he was very worried about his wife and how I appeared. And, you know, at first he did say, don't worry about what she's saying. But then he saw for himself all of the craziness coming in. My husband is not easily swayed with drama. He does not care. He does not get involved in drama. He does not get, definitely doesn't get involved in social media drama. And so when all of this started, initially his thoughts were, It'll die down. You know, he knew it was going to hurt my feelings because of what was being said. But his initial reaction was, you know, just don't worry about what she's saying. It's nuts. And the more the follower comments came in, the more the threats against me from people who knew where I lived, uh, it started to really make him nervous. And he's not easily shaken. My husband is solid as a rock. He is just logical. He's, uh, I, jokingly say he's smart, hot, and boring. He is just, that's just my husband. He's very steady. And this started to scare him just because of the unpredictability to see what people were saying and not knowing what they may or may not be capable of. He saw how it affected me and he said, we need to check your blood pressure. And it was very high. My blood pressure normally doesn't run higher than 130 over 80. And we checked it and it was very high. Uh, my top number was in the 150s and 60s, and the bottom numbers were well over 100 um, at some point, even into the teens, I think. And he was concerned because if your blood pressure gets too high, you can have a stroke. 
a literal stroke. And we were trying everything to try and keep my blood pressure down. I was, you know, laying down in a dark room with music. I doubled, I doubled my blood pressure medicine that Saturday and Sunday to try and get it lower. And it, and it wouldn't lower. It would not go down. I also doubled my medication that Monday morning that I went to the doctor. And when I got to the doctor, my blood pressure was still sky high. At the doctor, my blood pressure was 154 over 100. And I broke down. My husband had to drive me, of course. And my doctor, who had just seen me two months prior, and everything was fine, she was like, what's going on? And how do you tell this to somebody? And so I tried to explain to her what was going on. And all she, you know, could conclude from a medical perspective was, you're in, you're in undue stress. This is not a result of your medication not working for your blood pressure. You are in a stressful situation. And so your high blood pressure is brought on by anxiety. And so she immediately prescribed me anxiety medicine that you take as needed. And so she wanted me to take this anxiety medicine whenever my blood pressure was high. And it was one that you could take up to three times per day. I had never been on anything for anxiety, depression, or anything like that. I wasn't opposed to it at that point because I needed help. And so we got the medicine. My husband went and got it immediately. And I started taking it. And I had never really experienced anxiety before. No, now knowing what that feels like. And I don't know if it's an anxiety attack or whatever. The only thing that I can say was it felt like my insides were vibrating, like my insides were shaking, like my organs were shaking and I could not make it stop no matter what. And she advised me to take this medicine at first to take half and see how that affected me. And just as the days went on and I kept saying to my attorney, like, when is this going to stop? Make it stop, make it stop. I ended up having to take that medication the maximum amount of time they could a day. I took it three times a day just to stop shaking. Um, my doctor had told me that she wanted me to come back, I think in two weeks to see how everything was going. But in the meantime, I'm taking three of this medication per day. And I took it and my blood pressure was still high. On the morning of November 16th, before I went to the doctor at home on my monitor, my blood pressure was 164 over 115. On the 18th at 7.04 PM, it was 152 over 108. On the 25th of November at 10.48 AM, it was 151 over 96. The defendant was finally served with a lawsuit on November 25th at 4 PM. And the next reading that I have of my blood pressure was the following morning, November 26th at 8:12 a.m. and for the first time since this started my blood pressure was normal. It was 117 over 79 because at that point she had been served and she hadn't posted anything else. The target that I was racing towards of her being served and so she would stop happened. And immediately you could see it in my blood pressure. I didn't even realize that until I was going back and looking through the records. But that's the first time since it started that my blood pressure normalized. I went back to my doctor the following Monday on November the 30th. And when I got to the doctor, my blood pressure was also normal that morning. It was 110 over 67. But I had been taking three of this anxiety medication per day. And my doctor said, that's not sustainable. You can't do that. And we need to put you on something long term. And I said, okay. And, you know, when I called my mom, I know her history and upbringing and mental health and medication for that kind of thing wasn't very prevalent back in before I was born or even in the 80s, that kind of thing. And there was a stigma attached to anxiety medication, depression medication, and it just wasn't something that historically in our family people took medication for. And so I was nervous to tell my mom like, Hey, they want to put me on this medicine because I was nervous of what she would think or feel, or maybe advise me not to. And when I told her, she was like, you take whatever they give you, all of it. doesn't matter what it is. If the doctor says it's going to help you, you take it. And at that point I realized that my mom was scared. She was scared for her daughter because it was affecting my health. 
and I couldn't make it not. There, I couldn't. You can't will that away. You can't will your blood pressure to go down. It's not. It's not a thing. And so I took all of it, whatever they gave me. That's what I took, and I would still have to supplement the anxiety medicine um, whenever she would post, and it made me so mad that someone else could affect me that much physically just from the comfort of her keyboard. Something else happened the day that I went to the day that I went to the doctor. That was the Monday after all of this started. My neighbor came over. He taught at my son's school. My son's school that was across the street from the defendant's warehouse. And he just had this look on his face. And I hadn't told my neighbors what was going on. I told anybody. And he goes, what's going on? Because my, my coworkers, they know that I'm, that I'm neighbors with my son. They know that I'm friends with my son's parents. And they came to me and they're like, what's going on with so-and-so's mom? And they're showing him these posts. And this is at my son's school. Like these were my son's teachers. And the fact that they were reading this and they're like, what's up with his mom? That was mortifying. I was mortified. I think that I almost collapsed. I was just, I almost couldn't stand up anymore when he said that. I started sobbing and he was like, whoa, whoa, I'm so sorry. And I just said, it's a lot. And no, it's not true. Please tell them, whoever's asking, that none of that is true. And that woman is crazy. Whatever she's saying is complete fabrication. None of that is true. But it was mortifying. November the 17th is when I asked Clara and my son to make their social media private. Clara told me, like, hey, there's a bunch of people viewing my story. Um, I was getting follower requests because I hadn't shut my social media down. And I told both of my kids that I had social media and I said, shut it down. Get rid of anybody that you don't know. Like, no, they do not get access to us. And then on the 18th is when someone commented because they were speculating what did I look like. And a few of them couldn't remember what I look like or however many of them couldn't remember what I look like. And someone who I did not know found a picture of me and my son. They had cropped my son out. So he wasn't in the picture, which I appreciated. But the fact that someone could access that and post it on social media, I was like, nope, we're not doing this. You don't get access to me. You don't get access to my family. You definitely don't get access to my children. You know, the defendant was making posts about how she was leaving my youngest son in her will. That's weird. That's really weird. And we wouldn't let him walk to school anymore after that or home from school because we live right near her warehouse. And if he were to walk to school, he would walk on the road that goes directly in front of her warehouse. And I have no idea what would happen if she happened to be driving by, if she happened to roll her window down, what she might say. I have no idea. And so to this day, still right now, today, by at the time of this podcast recording, my son is not allowed to walk to her from school. When I made the decision to shut down my social media, I was devastated and I know that might sound weird, but I'm a very social person and I posted all the time. I loved posting pictures of my kids and especially my granddaughter and my social media was private. My Instagram was private. My Facebook was private. I'm a private citizen, but I still didn't know who might be on my social media that might see something. I just didn't want to be searchable. I didn't want to have an online footprint. And at the time, I didn't know that I would be shutting my social media down for almost two years. And I missed it. I missed seeing people. And after I talked to Todd, when you're in a legal proceeding, you're not supposed to talk about it. Only one of us, <laughs> between myself and the defendant, abided by that. But I didn't talk about it. And so I was afraid to go in public. I was afraid for people to see me. And I was very isolated. And then whenever I shut down my social media, I was even more isolated and it was extremely lonely 
because I also knew that if I contacted anybody, my friends or whatever, to try to tell them what was going on, I was going to have to write their name down whenever I was asked the legal question, who knows about this case? And I didn't want to have to involve them. And so it was me, my mom, my kids, my husband, obviously my best friend knew. The uh, Steph, former employees, obviously Laura knew because she had sent me the messages. But that was it. My circle became a dot at that point. And I was, I was extremely lonely. I wouldn't leave the house. I was afraid of being recognized. The defendant was tagging everybody that she could in these posts. At one point, mom came over and said, I'm taking you and we're getting a pedicure. And I said, uh-uh, not leaving the house. And she said, yes, we're going. We'll get you a hat. We were still in the thick of COVID, so I wore a mask. I had a hat on and I told mom, do not utter my name. Whenever we get there and we have to write our names down and say what pedicure, I don't care, but do not say my name. And I was terrified the whole time. My mom, did you just trying to take me so that I would relax? And I was horror. I was terrified. I had my hat pulled down super far and I was just looking around going, does anybody recognize me? What are they saying? What are they thinking? Are they going to take a picture of me and send it to the defendant? Is that going to be broadcasted on social media? Because the one person that I texted who I thought was my friend and said, this is insane. I hope that I don't have to tell you this, but these are lies. She screenshotted that, sent it to the defendant and the defendant posted it and mocked me. So I was terrified that I was going to be photographed or videoed and it was going to be sent. And then that was going to be broadcasted. We stopped going to church. We had just started back going to church and I wouldn't go. And my husband didn't push me. He was like, okay, we'll just, we'll just keep watching online. And the good thing was that because we were in COVID, my husband was working from home. And so I was never alone, which, which was very good. We, um, we are not gun owners. Um, and so we didn't really have a way to protect ourselves. My husband went and bought a security system and installed cameras all around our home and inside our home. The only weapon that we had were baseball bats from our boys' mini seasons of Little League. We have baseball bats of all kinds of shapes and sizes. And we have our dog, Max, who barks if he hears a cat link outside. And that was our defense. And we would place the baseball bat strategically around the house so that no matter where we were, if someone happened to come in, we would be able to at least reach for one to try and defend ourselves. I was taking medicine to help with anxiety just to keep from shaking, but I also knew that I still wasn't okay and I needed to find a therapist so that I could go and get the help that I needed to deal with all of this. And I searched on the internet. I refused to even entertain going to a female therapist. I was terrified. What if they follow the defendant? What if they believe her? What if I go there and they secretly follow the defendant and I'm sitting there telling them all of this stuff? What if they're friends with her? What if they, I, I didn't know. And so I just completely ruled out going to a female therapist. I searched for a therapist who specialized in narcissistic abuse. And I found this man who he actually had a YouTube channel and had written some books and I researched him and contacted him and he called me back and he said, I'm so sorry, but I'm retiring, but I have somebody that I can recommend. And I said, but I need someone who specializes in narcissistic abuse. And he said, yes, this, this other person does. And he gave me his number and I called him and by the time he got back to me, I just was like, what is the first appointment that you have? And it was around the holidays. It was around Thanksgiving. And he said, the first appointment that I have is whatever day and time. And I said, okay, I'll be there. And when I went in, he said, tell me what's going on. I don't even know how I spoke. I just cried. 
and cried and cried. And it's also embarrassing. This is embarrassing. This is humiliating to explain, to try and explain to somebody what's happening, to have it be affecting me as much as that it was affecting me to where I was just, didn't even recognize myself, to have to be so heavily medicated just to be able to make it through the day. At that time that I shut my social media down, I shut it all down. So any profile that I had on LinkedIn or any Glassdoor, whatever profiles that I had made during my job search, I had shut those down too, because I didn't want anybody to have any access to anything about me. Because these people were saying all of these things, it was just the unpredictability. Were they going to call my old employers? Were they going to try to find people that worked with me? I had no idea. I just wanted to remove access as far as it depended on me. I am very thankful that Clara and my granddaughter lived with us at this at that time. And I did become very detached. But in the evenings when my granddaughter would come home, she would come and snuggle up with me on the couch. And I would just hold her. I couldn't play with her. I couldn't really talk to her. But I would just hold her and hug her and let her snuggle me. And that brought me some comfort. I was on so much medicine that I just was a zombie. It didn't stop me from crying all the time, but it stopped me from shaking. But I just felt like I wasn't even in my own body. Like I was just watching my body walk around or sit there. It, it just didn't feel like me. My coping skills are as follows. I distract myself. I um, try to find humor and I also, as one of my distraction means, I will find a game on my phone in the app store and play it incessantly. And I couldn't find any humor. That was not a coping mechanism that was accessible to me during that time. Um, but I did find a game on my phone. I also was... I was so confused by the fact that there were authorities involved. I was ready and willing to gather every single electronic device in my possession that my kids had access to and sit on my front lawn and wait for somebody, some authority to come and go. We need to see all of your electronic devices. Okay, go ahead. And when I found this game, I, I played Fishdom and uh, I would look at my screen time report that I would get and the amount of hours that I would just be on my phone distracting myself at that dumb game. It is, it's a lot. It was very excessive, but it kept my mind busy and it kept me from wondering what was happening. Every night I was afraid to go to sleep because the defendant Historically, it stayed up late at night, and that's when she would go live or post stories that would be kind of outlandish. And I knew that when I woke up, there would be fresh hell in the morning. And when I woke up, I was afraid to open my eyes because I knew that I was going to look at my phone and I would have a notification from somebody telling me what had been posted the night before. I lived in that misery for months and months and months and months. On December 10th, my middle child, my son, had a choir concert at the high school. And my husband said, we need to go. And he wasn't, he wasn't ugly about it. And I think that if I would have freaked out, that he would have let me stay home, but he also didn't want me to be by myself. But he was like, come on, we'll wear masks. Um, it's my son's choir concert. And so, um, so we went, I did have a mask and I felt 
oddly safe in that. And I remember they had us wait outside before they opened the doors. And when I was outside in line, my friend, um, her son also sang in the choir and she was there and we were just talking. She was like, Hey, and we were talking about arbitrary things like the weather. And do we know what songs they're going to sing? And that kind of thing. We were just making very generic conversation. They did sit with us when we went inside. And that next morning, my friend texted me and said, the defendant blocked me. And I knew that my son sang in the choir. This was a choir concert with another boy whose mom knew and was friends with the defendant. I had seen that mom commenting on the defendant's social media posts about me. And obviously I don't know this for sure, but it made me feel like I was being watched the first time that I went out into public that I was being watched because my friend wasn't blocked before that. And then all of a sudden I go out in public for the first time to my son's choir concert, make general conversation with my friend about the weather, sit with them at the choir concert and she's blocked. And that was terrifying because the defendant kept saying, everybody knows. And I, and she wanted people to know she was tagging people to know, but that's exactly what happened. Someone saw me in public talking to that woman and that woman got blocked. My therapist would give me activities or things or homework to do um, during the week. I saw him every week. And one of the first things that he told me to do is that I, I do need to go in public. I cannot just isolate myself in the house. I need to get out. And he said, go to church. You need to go to church. And I would say, but she tagged people from my church. And he said, go anyway. You need to go. And he said, it's unlikely that someone is going to come up to you at church in a house of God and say horrible things to you or try to harm you physically. And if they do, there is church security. You know, he was trying to be reasonable with me. And I knew that what he was saying was logical, but it was still terrifying. So the uh, first time that we went to church was for a Christmas Eve service. And again, we could wear masks, which was great. And we did wear masks and we did go to that Christmas Eve service. After that, he was like, okay, you went, nothing happened, go again. And we, we went, but I would only go to the 8.30 a.m. service because nobody goes to the 8.30 service. I, at my church before, I had seen people wearing her clothes. There's an item that she sells every month. It's a curated collection item. It's a box of stuff every month. That item has in it things that you typically couldn't buy on her website otherwise. I would see people at church wearing those items. I knew exactly where it came from. I knew there were people that went to our church that knew her and followed her. It was terrifying, but I went and made myself go. We went to the 830 service and then my therapist was like, great. Now you're going to start going to the service that, you've, that you used to go to, that you would normally go to. And so we did. And slowly, over time, I was able to get out in public again. I was always looking around. Even now, today, I will catch myself looking around in public to see if anyone is staring at me and wondering. It's just a habit. In February of 2021, there was an ice storm where we live. And our schools and the roads were all shut down for, I think, a week my neighbor, the same neighbor that taught at my son's school, they had a boat and inner tube stuff and they knocked on our door and said, Hey, come with us. I'm pulling the inner tube behind my truck in the parking lot, the school parking lot. And they were just going to have fun with the kids. And so we bundled up and we went. And at first the kids didn't really want to get out and go. So it was just grownups. It was just me and my husband and our neighbors, the husband and wife. And we went and I was sitting in the inner tube. Why am I emotional about this? This is a funny story. Um, I was sitting with the wife, who's one of my very dear friends, in the inner tube. And the husbands were in the truck and they were pulling us. And he was driving around in the parking lot. And it was so fun. And I was laughing. And it was the first time that I had really laughed since this all started. This was in February of 2021. This started in November 
and it felt so good. It was such a release. And we're also in the parking lot right across in the school that's right across from the defendant's warehouse. And I just started screaming and nobody could hear me. I was just screaming the things that I wanted to say to her. She wasn't there. No one was there. But we were there. We were across from that. And so I was just going around in this inner tube. And I know this sounds dumb. But it was such a release to be able to scream, you are a liar. You are a liar. You made this up in your brain. And you are trying to destroy my life with it. And it was such a release of just anger. And it, and it I knew, even though no one could hear me, it felt like I was finally able to speak. because. I, I couldn't, you don't, when you're in a lawsuit, you don't talk about it. I could talk about it with my attorney, my husband, my mom, my best friend, but I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't defend myself. I was off social media. I just had to sit there and review the footage and read the comments of what everyone else was saying without a voice. I was letting the legal system speak for me. And that was excruciating. We went on a trip for spring break. We went down to Houston and Galveston. That felt a little safer because I wasn't close to home. I knew that the defendant had customers all over the U.S., but being out of the area felt nice. My hair started to fall out. At one point, I had to, in early 2021, I started wearing wigs because I hadn't, my hair just fell out. It was so thin and fine. And I just hardly had any hair from the stress. And I actually had to get on medication for that as well. My daughter, Clara, turned 21 in April of 2021. And my mom and I took her on a trip. We took her best friend. It was a girl's trip to New York City. And in a, in a city with millions and millions and millions and millions of people, I felt so safe because I was unnoticed and insignificant because there were so many other people around. And it was honestly the first time I think I started to feel a little bit normal because there's so many people, nobody cares about you, but it just felt good to be able to just, I just remember our hotel wasn't far from Times Square and just being able to walk out in public in the open air without being afraid that someone was going to go, oh, you're a stalker you're a hacker, you are a troll or whatever it is, it felt safe. So the first part of the trip, my, it was me and my mom and Clara and Clara's best friend. And of course we brought my granddaughter. We had a really, really, really good time. And then my husband came and joined me and we stayed for a couple of extra days and we got to go out to dinner and we just got to go on some dates and we hadn't really been able to do that. Um, until that point. So that was really nice. And we were in New York. I remember the pictures and all the pictures I was wearing a wig because I <laughs> didn't have any hair. Um, at one point we were in Times Square and by this point I had been able to laugh a little more and uh, have some humor. And I ran across several New York City police officers in Times Square and mom and I thought it would be funny to take a picture with them. And so I went and I said, you know, can I take a picture with you? And they said, okay. And I kind of made this little uh, gesture like, oh no, they caught me because all over the internet was, I was this horrible criminal and the FBI and the Texas Rangers and the police were coming to get me and I was going to go to prison and all of this stuff which none of that was true. And so it, it was a little bit fun to do that. And so I took the picture and I texted it to my attorney and I said, well, they got me. And so he goes, let me guess. They read the internet and decided you were a criminal and, and arrested you. And I said, yep, that's what happened. So it was a moment of humor and in a place and a time where I felt kind of safe for the first time since all of this started because there was just so many people there that didn't matter who I was. I would love to be able to say that I never wavered in my faith and that I just stood strong and I relied on God. That didn't happen. That was not happening. 
because my husband and my mom and the close friends around me lifted me up in prayer, that's what got me through because I couldn't do that on my own because it disgusted me to watch her say a Bible verse or play a song, a Christian song that maybe I used to use to help me in a time when I needed encouragement, but she ruined that. She tarnished it. And so, and I would tell my, my therapist because one of my friends contacted me after I hadn't been on social media for a long time and was like, Hey, where are you at? What's going on? And I told her what was going on. And she tells me, I need you to read this book about forgiveness. And I know that her intentions were good. And I even ordered the book. And I knew growing up as a Christian, being a Christian as an adult, I had advised people of that myself, of forgiveness and how important that was. I couldn't do it. And my therapist is a Christian. And I talked to him and I said, I'm really having a hard time because I'm mad at God that this is happening. I feel like I can't cling to any scripture because if I do, she's going to post a meme about it or a, a quote with that scripture on it. And it's just, it ruins it. And my friend has suggested this book on forgiveness. I can't even open the cover. And he looked at me and said, under no circumstances, do you need to think about forgiveness right now? You are being traumatized daily over and over and over and over again, it would be irresponsible of me to advise you to try to walk through a forgiveness process with this person right now. And he said, you do not need to feel guilty about that at all. The fact that you're even upset that you can't forgive her, that tells me your heart. And that tells me that you will get there one day, but you do not need to worry about that right now. And it wasn't like a ticket for me to you know, hate her or wish horrible things on her. It was just kind of a relief that I didn't have to now because I was already, I just wasn't in a place where I could do that. And that was a relief because I was afraid that if I brought that up with him, that he would make me forgive her or say, no, you have to. And this is what I want you to do. I was terrified of that. It was just such a relief that I could feel what I was feeling and go through what I was going and not have to have that added pressure at the time. The other thing that he would say to me is that part of why I was so upset and this was so horrible was because I couldn't defend myself. I couldn't say anything. I was so silenced for so long because the defendant was a public figure, because she already had commentary about her all over the internet. I was now in this. I didn't ask for this. I was not a public figure. And all of these people that had commentary about her are now invested in my story. I had no control. I felt so powerless over that. But I also couldn't even speak for myself. I just had to sit there and watch all of these people speculate and all of her followers saying all of these horrible things. It was oddly comforting to me that there were at least some people who saw through her lies. That was very comforting to me. I would have to review footage and hours, and hours, and watch the defendant's followers, her army, attack me over and over and over again. And so many of them knew me personally, had been to my home, worked with me in the warehouse when they came to volunteer. And to watch them say these things, it was excruciating to not be able to reach out to them. My therapist did at one point, he said, why don't you write a letter to all of the people that you wish that you could talk to. Just write it down and then put it in the fire. In the summer of 2021, in June of 2021, I was riding around in the back of my neighbor's Jeep, my same neighbors that we had gone ice intertubing with. And we were just relaxing. The husbands were driving us around and I was talking to my friend. She's asking me, how am I doing? And I'm like, you know, I, I'm going stir crazy. I need to figure out what I want to do with my life and like maybe work. I've got to find something to occupy my time with besides playing fishdom and spending insane amounts of money on imaginary diamonds so that my fish don't die because that's not, <laughs> that's not a long-term sustainable coping mechanism. I said, but I 
I cannot reactivate my social media. I don't want to reactivate my LinkedIn. I don't even know the first thing about trying to start applying for jobs again. Or like, I, I think I would be terrified if I had to talk to anybody and have an interview, because what if they know? What if they know the defendant? And my neighbor is a principal at one of our local high schools. And she said, I, w- I always need teachers. D- get your teaching certification and be a teacher. And I said, you know, my mom has always harassed me about being a teacher. And my mom would always say, you should become a teacher. You would be on the same schedule as the kids. And I was always like, absolutely not. That's not for me. However, when my daughter got into high school, I discovered that I really loved that age and being able to mentor kids that age. And I would even in my own um, career, you would find me mentoring the younger employees and then some that were my age, but I would mentor them about their finances. I would talk to them about budgeting and credit and just a lot of personal finance things that I happen to be really passionate about. And I thought, you know, maybe I could do that. Like I, I know her, she's in the district. So she would have, she would be a reference for me so that it wouldn't look weird that I wasn't on social media and had no online footprint whatsoever. I knew some other people in the district. My kids had gone to that district since they started going to school. And so it seemed like a good idea. And the next day after I thought about it, it still seemed like a good idea. So I went online. I found a certification program, found some details. I talked to my husband and he was like, babe, I think you'd be great at that. Go for it. And so I looked up what my certification would be in with my degree. And it was just everything that I had done with in my career, which a lot of times when you get a college degree, you don't always use it, but I had actually used the one that I got. And so the fact that that would be the content area that I would be able to teach in, I felt confident I could do this. I know this stuff. So I started my teaching certification. My plan was I was going to be a substitute teacher for the 21-22 school year. And just when you're a sub, you can kind of choose the days that you want to work. And I just thought this would be great for, I could sub at my son's schools and, you know, be with them. And I did, there was a position at my friend's high school that would have been in my content area that I did interview for that summer. She recused herself from the interview process because she was my friend and I didn't end up getting that job, which was fine. It was good to go through the interview process for being an educator because I had never done that before, but I didn't end up getting that job. It was fine. I became a sub a week after I started subbing and I was subbing in high school. It confirmed. Yes, I do like this. This is, I can do this. Um, the, a position came open at my son's high school and it was a long-term guest educator position. The teacher was no longer going to be there. And so it was also, not only was it a long-term guest educator position, but it was in my content area. So I could do the long-term guest educator thing until I finished my degree. And then I could apply for that job. And the, the associate principal there was friends with my friend who was a principal. So she was able to put in a good word for me and I went and I loved it. I was offered the job and that is my new career. I am now in my second year as an educator. Obviously that is a serious pay difference from what I would be able to command with my knowledge and experience. But the thought of going out into the business world where my reputation had been tarnished or having to reactivate a LinkedIn or any of that kind of stuff at that time, it just wasn't, no, there was no way that I could do it. I needed to be able to work somewhere where I knew people and felt safe and that I could still, you know, be with my kids and that kind of a thing. And so it just ended up being a perfect fit for me during that time. I didn't tell my principal or any of my admin, what was going on at first, because again, this is embarrassing. Number one, number two, I'm not supposed to talk about it. I was afraid that I would run into people at the school that might know me and, uh, or know about me. I was afraid of that. The thing with teaching at a large school is you don't really have to see other adults or any school, I guess. You don't really have to see other adults that much. You can pretty much just go to school, go to your room, you teach the kids, and then you can leave. And so I kind of tried to keep to myself with that because I didn't want anybody to know what was going on. It did freak me out one day. 
I had a kid who was really into technology and he raised his hand and he said, Miss Wright, I know where you live. And I said, um, okay, that's inappropriate. Uh, you should not, you should not know that. And he's like, no, I'm Googling you. And I, my stomach just dropped because I was like, please do not Google me. Please do not Google me and find this nonsense. I was terrified because high school kids, they are brutal, man. Like you can't, they will, mm -mm, no, I was afraid that they would find it. They would believe it. They, it was, I was very afraid. And so I tried to kind of distract him. He was very consumed with all the things he could find about me online. I could see on his Google when he Googled me that if he would have scrolled down further, I saw it at the bottom, the Reddit for the defendant that had my name in it, um, in one of the comments. And so I distracted him before he scrolled that far, but the whole time I was sweating. Another time in uh, the spring of 2022, I was reviewing footage over spring break and I saw that a woman commented in her profile picture. It was her and one of my students and I lost it. Uh, I freaked out. I was sobbing. I called my mom. Um, I was very terrified. And at that point, I made the decision, I got to tell my principal, I need to tell my admin what's going on because I don't want them to find out from a parent that there's a person out there saying all these crazy things about me. I want it to come from me because I would be mad as a boss, as a manager or whatever, if something like that happened and I wasn't notified. And so I did tell my friend who was a principal, I was like, Hey, this is what's going on. I'm going to have to tell them. And she was like, it's okay. Just you know, let them know. And so I asked to meet with them and, um, I was not prepared for how supportive they were. And they were like, and by this time I had built a little bit of a reputation. I'd been there for more than half a year and there was positive feedback about me from the students and from other teachers. And, and they said, we have your back. We have your back. You think we haven't dealt with crazy parents before? If someone calls up here, you know, we will handle it. One of them said, is it okay if I let our SRO know, our school resource officer, we have police officers that are assigned to our school. And she said, you know, just in case anybody, a follower or the defendant, you know, loses their mind one day and tries to come to the school, I would like for them to know so that you're protected, we're protected, everybody's protected. And I said, yeah, absolutely. So not only was I feeling supported from, you know, the admin perspective that they would come to me if anything ever happened and they would have my back, but I also physically felt really safe because our, our police officers knew. And so that was a very unexpected um, surprise. That was great. And now, um, the you know, the case is over and more people know that are above me. And one of my goals in releasing this podcast and telling my story is I want to communicate and help educate our youth the consequences and ramifications that can happen with irresponsible social media use. You cannot do these things to people online. Our laws are starting to catch up with this. The fact that I was able to win a defamation case about posts on social media is a milestone in the legal process. But I, I do think that our laws are catching up with social media. But honestly, it doesn't matter what laws you have if there are people out there who don't care about what the law says. And so as far as it depends on me, I want to be able to help educate our kids about social media responsibility and what is okay and not okay online. Not only that, but in real life too. You don't say make a statement about somebody that you cannot verify that is the truth that ruins their reputation and causes them harm. And so part of my goal is to spread awareness about defamation and help educate people. And hopefully not only would, you know, if someone is in a similar situation, help them know what to do, but also help people to not get into this situation for themselves and not be the perpetrator of defaming someone online or in person. Being able to get back out and, and work, even though I had to completely change careers, 
helped me to start feeling normal. One of the reasons that I was in the career that I was in and the role that I was in is I really do like to help people. I helped the defendant as much as I possibly could. I love being in a role where I can help students and and other people. I get to teach a class that is on personal finance. I get to teach some other classes as well, but I get to help kids with providing them resources and teaching them things that they will use in their life. We learn about all kinds of adulting things. And so that's very fulfilling for me, which was an unexpected surprise. And it also helps me to feel more like myself, to be able to be giving back and helping people. When I was so isolated in this process, not being obviously on social media, but also just isolated from a lot of people because I wasn't supposed to talk about this. People, you know, that knew about it, I had to legally put down on a list. And so one of the things that I treasure the most throughout this whole process was my mom's friend. Um, I've only met her a handful of times, but immediately when this started happening and my mom was, you know, seeking comfort with her friends, this one lady started writing me handwritten cards and mailing them to me on a regular basis. And that really kept me going for a lot because it was so comforting to know that someone was praying for me and taking the time to write these letters to me and mail them to me. And the first one said, Crystal, you may have heard my name. I think we even met in Arizona a few years ago. But as moms, I keep up with you through your mom. And the journey you are on now is so unexplainable, so mean, just flat evil. I have prayed for this woman to be struck silent, to lose credibility, and to be found to be the fake person she is. I have prayed for her heart to be open for you and to be strong and for you to fight back and make her just stop. No, you are not fighting alone. I'll stand with you and your mom and fight with you. And she did. I have so many letters that she wrote me. Throughout this entire thing, I have them all, and I would be so excited when I would open the mail and see she has a dog stamp on the envelopes. And so I would see that stamp, and I knew that there was another letter from Cindy, and they were so comforting to me. And um, it was just so sweet that she would take the time out to not only pray for me, but also write that to me. And I don't think that I would ever be able to thank her for that. And her prayer came true. I mean, the defendant's not silent, but she was found to be the liar that she is. That did happen. She has lost credibility. So I'm very, very thankful for those prayers and for those notes. I've already said during this time, my faith was attacked. My character was attacked. The fact that I, people were saying I wasn't even a real Christian, that I was evil, all these kinds of things. It was hard for me to hold on to my own faith because the defendant was weaponizing God. And in my opinion, she was using the Lord's name in vain. Not maybe the way that people think, but by using his name to further her narrative, that is a misrepresentation of God. And it was hard. And one time, mom texted me this devotionals and this was in the middle of delay after delay. And that was just so excruciating because I just couldn't wait to move on to the next step. And so there would be this deadline that something was supposed to happen or a date where something was scheduled and it was supposed to happen. And then it would get delayed. And then it was just a complete letdown. And that was, that was awful. And so this says, trust your defense to God. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Psalm 23, 5, the NIV version. How do you handle rude people? You don't. Let God handle them. Let him be your defender. You've probably noticed that civilization is losing its civility. The world is getting ruder. The internet plays part in this. It allows people to hide behind the screen and say things online they would never say to others face to face. People who do this reveal the smallness of their hearts. Small people belittle others, thinking it will make them feel better. But great people make other people feel great. 
King David was a pro at this. He knew what it meant to be attacked, emotionally, verbally, physically. As a young man, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. But David spent two years running from his predecessor, King Saul, who wanted to kill him. He hid in caves while being criticized constantly behind his back. Yet David never said a bad word against Saul. He never retaliated. God was preparing David to be a king after his own heart. David says in Psalm 23, 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. David recognized God's goodness to him. God anointed his head with oil, which says to the world, This is my guy. Back off. He's going to be the next leader. David's cup overflowed, which meant God kept blessing him, even when others attacked him. Does it sound like David was stressed out? No, he didn't have to use up all his energy defending himself because he trusted God to be his defender. It takes a lot of faith and humility to rest and trust God when you're under attack, when you're misunderstood, and when rumors are spreading about you. When that happens, it's tempting to want to do something about it. But you are most like Christ when you remain silent under attack. Jesus was constantly attacked, yet he never retaliated, even on his way to the cross. He remained silent before his accusers because he had entrusted himself to the care of the Father. The Bible says, if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. 1 Peter 4.19 God won't let you down. Trust him to be your defender today. And this was in the middle of mom's frustrated, I'm frustrated, all of these things are being said, and we can't say anything. One of the other things that I questioned with my faith was the fact that I was, I guess, fighting back. You know, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And so I said this to my therapist and I said, you know, am I doing the wrong thing by fighting back? Like, am I just supposed to forgive and forget? And, you know, and he goes, okay, so yes, turn the other cheek. You did that. Then you turned the other cheek. And then she just kept punching you in the face directly in the nose, in the throat, all over your body. He said, I think you've turned enough cheeks. And he goes, honestly, holding someone accountable is biblical. It is godly because also she's not just going to stop at you. She will do this to other people. So you doing this and standing up for yourself and standing up for what is right and not allowing her to do this, it actually is showing grace to her because she's obviously not going to stop on her own. Something else is going to have to do that. And you're the vessel because I wrestled with that. Well, am I doing the wrong thing? Like, am I just supposed to ignore it? Because a lot of people think that. And my answer is no. The thing that I'm most grateful for in all of this is that as horrifying as all of this was to go through and just the torture, the mental toll that it took, the physical toll that it took, the isolation, um, just becoming a shell of myself. And I'm finally able to feel normal again, especially after the verdict. But when people go through hard times, sometimes it affects negatively the relationships around them. I'm very, very, very grateful that even though my circle got so small, that it was very solid. My relationship with my husband improved because he went into this protection mode and it made us be very, very close. There wasn't any distractions. I didn't have anything. I definitely wasn't hanging out with people. I wasn't going into public. It was just him and I and our kids. And so our family got closer through this. I was able to also get closer with my mom because we talked, I don't know, 75 times per day. The friends that I was talking to, it, it just, it was a very small space, but it was a safe space. And that I would never trade. Um, I am very grateful to even the relation, my relationship with my daughter was strengthened because again, she's going into the mode of, I want to protect my mom. So I will never trade those things. I'm very, very thankful for those. I really wish there would have been another way to go about that <laughs> than to have to go through something like that. But I am very, very grateful for those things that were solid and steady within the storm. Watching the defendant escalate her defamation over the two-year period 
like my mom said, it emboldened her that I wasn't answering her on social media. And so the lies just kept getting wilder and wilder and wilder. And she would always talk about her internet army and her internet friends. This was a false narrative that she created on the internet. But this was actually my real life. This was not imaginary. This was not a story on the internet. This was my real life. The defendant would always say that she was telling her truth, her truth, her truth, and her story, her story, her story. The difference now is that she controlled that narrative for almost two years. She told the story for almost two years. She told her story for almost two years. And now it's time for me to tell mine. She doesn't get to tell my story. She doesn't get to control the narrative anymore. And I'm not just telling my side of the story. I am sharing the actual truth. Next time on False and Defamatory. My intention is not to diagnose anyone that I've not met. Is this abuse? Was this abuse? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. It's, a, it's abuse. And, you know, there was an intentional act, not just one, actually so many, uh, you know, so many attacks, personal attacks on you. The, the, the whole intention was to hurt you, to smear you. That is abuse. The healing a lot of times starts when you get out of the situation. You know, it happens when the trauma stops. And unfortunately, in this situation, it just was perpetuated. It just kept on going on and on and on. And so you were left without a voice for two years. It's almost unbelievable, unless you see like the, the data in front of you. Most people don't make up these narratives. And so when they say things like this, it's very believable and people buy into them. You know, it's feeding the ego. It's also feeding her opportunity to sell things. And so, you know, she's doing what works. They want the target to feel isolated. They want to take everything that they possibly can away from that person so that they feel the pain, so that they feel punished. And so I'm not sure what it was about you, uh, but there was something about you that she really wanted to bring down. And she went after you hard. And to me, it was crucial that you stood up for yourself. And I don't think, to your credit, that she ever expected anyone to stand up to her the way that you did. I think this is, an, this is one of those things that hopefully will help other people who have gone through similar things and, and maybe even encourage them to do something about it. Because again, people who do these kind of things to people don't expect people to stand against them. I'm finally getting to the point where I'm starting to appreciate or being able to come to terms with and appreciate the journey that I've been on because of where I'm at now stood and you fought and you won and and now you get to tell your story the false and defamatory podcast is hosted edited and produced by me crystal Wrighton, with music by harry b ragsdale who also serves as my audio engineer first and foremost i would like to thank my guests who generously shared their time and insight with us i would also like to thank my husband my mom my children my therapist, my attorneys, and trusted friends who walked with me through this process and made this podcast possible. Being able to finally speak the truth is incredibly healing, and I appreciate you listening more than I could accurately express. If you would like to continue receiving my latest episodes and stay up to date with my content, please subscribe to the False and Defamatory podcast on your preferred podcast platform and follow False and Defamatory on social media with the handle at False and Defamatory. Links to False and Defamatory social media as well as my blog can be found in the episode notes and on falseanddefamatory.com. Listening to the False and Defamatory podcast is free on most platforms. However, if you prefer a video podcast or would like to see the documents discussed in the podcast shown on screen, you can subscribe to my Patreon, where you will enjoy these benefits as well as early access, bonus content, and ad-free listening. The defendant spread her false and defamatory claims to hundreds of thousands of followers for more than two years. My goal is to share the truth so it can reach each person who heard her lies. By sharing this podcast, you can help me achieve 
achieve that goal. Your support means everything to me and helps me reach a wider audience. So please hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with those you think would benefit from it. Thank you again for sharing and for listening. All social media posts referenced in this podcast were included in the evidence in case number 096-321-678-20 in the 96th District Court of Tarrant County, Texas, where the jury unanimously ruled in my favor on August 24, 2022. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the False and Defamatory podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the guests are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the view of the False and Defamatory podcast or Crystal Wrighton. Please do not make any attempts to reach out to the defendant or her followers. Names have been redacted to protect the privacy of the defendant and her army of followers who commented on her public posts. The unanimous jury verdict has not only provided me with justice, but also allows me to share my story. The purpose of this podcast is to share the truth and to provide educational content regarding defamation and social media. If you have any questions about this or to view the documents discussed in this episode, please visit falseanddefamatory.com.